Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Livia Sarah. Livia is an autistic self-advocate, eating disorder survivor, and host of the podcast Live Label Free. Livia is currently working on her fifth book, and her publications include a memoir, Rainbow Girl, and a cookbook titled Nourishing Neurodiversity. She is also a one-on-one coach for autistic people recovering from an eating disorder. In this conversation, we discuss Livia's autistic strengths, how having an eating disorder led to the journey of discovering her autism, why Livia thinks her eating disorder was a way of masking, how to disentangle autistic traits from eating disorder behaviors, examples of eating disorders that can be linked to autism, and tips for autistic people suffering an eating disorder. In this episode, discover what's possible when you live label-free. To learn more about Livia Sarah, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, Livia Sarah. Hi, Livia. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored and excited to be here. Could you please briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Livia Sarah. I am an autism advocate and eating disorder survivor that now helps others overcome their own mental obstacles and barriers to live a life in which they don't feel limited by rules and restrictions, both of themselves and of society. I'm an author of multiple books and many more to come. I have my own podcast, the Live Label Free podcast, where I talk about all things autism and eating disorders and behind the scenes. I work one-on-one with clients and parents to help them fully recover from disordered eating and embrace their unique autistic selves. Okay. Wow. You have a lot of accolades to celebrate there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I always call myself very multi-passionate, which I think is a very wonderful thing that is a lot of autistic people are. And I think it can also be our Achilles heel because we are very good at overwhelming ourselves and then becoming burnt out. (laughs) Mm, Okay. Well, let's start with talking about your autism. What are some of your strengths? I'd say I'm very persistent and perseverant in the sense that when I want something, I'm going to go for it and I'm not going to give up until I've achieved what I want to achieve. That would be one of my strengths. I think creativity is a huge one. Again, I think a lot of autistic people, I'm really able to think outside the box and gain insights and and share information in a way that I've never seen before and just By sharing that information, I've learned that it's often received very well. So yeah, creativity, persistence, what else? (laughs) I don't know. It's always hard coming up with things on the spot, Um, but I feel like that's enough. (laughs) Yeah, that's all right. And yeah, you know, when you have this passion for helping others and kind of spreading some kind of message, people can feel it. Yeah. I think it shows also in your social media and how a lot of people really kind of take in what you're sharing and find ways that they can relate to it also. Yeah, I think that that perspective that I have and that I can bring is really one of my my greatest strengths because I think especially on social media and on the internet, it can be really hard to crowd out the noise sometimes because a lot of what is being said is just the same thing over and over again. And it can be really frustrating because at some point you're like, I want something new. I want something real. I want something authentic. And I think, again, that word authentic, I think that 
in and of itself is also a strength of mine is that I really am able to be myself and express myself in a way that is just me, which, you know, took a long time and was a journey because in order for me to be that person, I had to unmask and embrace the fact that I am autistic and stop hiding it and stop hiding all the characteristics that do make me different. Hmm. And you were diagnosed as an adult, right? Yeah, when I was when I was 20. So yeah, okay. <laughs> to, uh, almost a decade after I was diagnosed with an eating disorder, which looking back is like, <laughs> how did we miss mm. that? But you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Right. So tell us about your journey of discovering your autism. Yeah, so I mean, my journey to discovering my autism was actually, it does start with with my eating disorder, actually, because it was during my recovery from an eating disorder where there was just something that I felt was really, really missing. And that's kind of what, what led me to, you know, kind of go deeper and seek out, like, what's underneath all of this? Like, why did the eating disorder even happen in the first place? Why do I feel like there's still so many struggling blocks for me that I feel like I should have fixed by now because I was recovered from my eating disorder, but there were still things that, you know, professionals said like, oh, that's still eating disorder behaviors. Well, for me, I knew in my heart, this is something completely different, but I just didn't know what. And I think, you know, not knowing what comes from us as a society, not being educated on autism or what autism is or what autism looks like or how autism can manifest. So for me, yeah, kind of to fast forward to post-recovery from my eating disorder. So that was in the beginning of 2020, I believe. So like right before the pandemic, I launched my my coaching business to help people recover from their eating disorder. So at this time, like I said, I was recovered from my eating disorder and everything I was sharing online on social media was just all eating disorder recovery focused, sharing my story, sharing what helped me. Just, yeah, creating a safe space for people to know that they weren't alone in their weird traits <laughs> that really only people who have experience of an eating disorder get. And yeah, that was just being received so well. And that's kind of the first time I realized, like, I have this perspective and I have this unique kind of insight to bring to the table that I've never seen before. So yeah, I launched my, my coaching business and my very first client was actually autistic, which Again, I didn't know anything about autism at the time, so I was willing to learn, but I remember asking her, you know, why do you reach out to me? And at this time, I had already had my blog and everything for a while, so I had my story on my website of, you know, being called too complex, being just labeled all these horrible things throughout eating disorder treatment, that I was hopeless, that I was manipulative, that I was non-compliant, you know, all these things that autistic people with or without without eating disorders are often called. And she said, yeah, I, I really resonated with, you know, being labeled as too complex because I'm autistic and I have an eating disorder. And because of that, you know, the professionals just didn't know what to do with me. So you're kind of my last hope, Livia. Like, that's why I reached out for coaching with you. And of course, I was honored. And the more and more we worked together and the more she shared her story, the more I was just recognizing myself in her, like all the autistic traits, um, the behaviors, the preferences. And I was like, maybe this has what was missing like all throughout this time, because it sounds like these preferences and desires I have around food are this autism thing she's talking about. And they're not related to what for a decade was called a disorder. So kind of my next step from that was reading the book Asperger's by Rudy Simone, which I'm sure you're aware of. It's like one of the biggest autistic female books. And yet to put it shortly, I have never read a book that fast in my entire life. Mm. So that's kind of when I just like basically just self-diagnosed myself on the spot. And then, yeah, the official diagnosis and the rest is kind of history. And I didn't really care what any professional was going to say because I was like, this is me. I know this is me. And whatever anyone else says, like, now I finally understand myself. I finally understand my entire life's history, why I was the way I was as a kid, why I barely had any friends, why I struggled in school, 
why I got an eating disorder. And from that moment onward was really when I brought my focus in coaching and my focus in content and everything I shared more so from just broad eating disorders to really connecting that gap of how are the autism and the eating disorder linked? What are the manifestations there? And what does an autistic individual need to understand or gain insight on that's maybe different for a neurotypical person who's recovering from an eating disorder? Mm. Wow, that's pretty amazing that you were able to discover that. Also at, you know, how old are you now? 24 in less than four weeks. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Well, happy early birthday. Thank you. But yeah, you know, we hear a lot, especially on this podcast, we hear a lot of women come on and talk about becoming diagnosed in their early 20s. And it's interesting to think about how at that moment in your life, you know, you're trying to establish yourself as a young adult and seeing where you stand in the world and what really you believe in and what your values are. And so all of that masking that you were talking about and that pushing down of maybe who you really are deep down, like in your teen years and in your childhood, like what that really does to someone's psyche and how they perceive themselves. Mm -hmm. And then also just on the flip side, like that liberation, right? Like how you felt so validated and like, this is me. I know this is me. Yeah, exactly. So Olivia, can you go back to your eating disorder now, just so we can get a little bit more context? Could you describe exactly what it was and then also how you recovered from it? Yeah. So like I said, kind of before, the eating disorder for me was a manifestation, I believe, of of undiagnosed autism. And honestly, I just believe the eating disorder was a mask in and of itself, <laughs> looking back, because it, it basically shields you from the entire world. It shields you from yourself. It shields you from your true values. Basically, everything that you are, an eating disorder hides you away from that. So I'd say my eating disorder started not the eating sort of per se, but like the obsession kind of with health and nutrition and clean eating started when I was around 11 years old. Leading up to this time, you know, I always knew I was different in a sense. And when you were talking about the masking and women that come on and often mask, I think it's really important to point out that the masking is often completely unconscious. It's like we do it to try and fit in, but we don't even know we're trying to fit in. We we feel like this is what everyone is doing. Like everyone's trying to fit in, right? So like, isn't everyone like being a pretend version of themselves? It was only later that I realized like that's not true at all. And that's why I'm so exhausted all the time because being someone else is exhausting. So yeah, growing up, like I always knew I was different. I never wanted to go to parties. Um, I always asked my mom the moment we came anywhere that was outside the house, like, okay, when are we leaving? Like, I need to know exactly when we're leaving again. I didn't have many friends or really many true friends because I just felt like their interest was so different than mine. Like, all of it was, you know, talking about dolls and boys and makeup. And I was like, can we talk about some, like, real stuff, like, that actually matters? (laughs) I remember in in fourth grade, I wanted to write a book report on the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, which is basically, like, a book about cancer. And I remember my teacher being like, shouldn't you pick something more age-appropriate? And I was like, no, but this is what interests me. (laughs) So anyways, yeah, I had many like special interests and obsessions growing up that when I became interested in something, it was like, okay, that's like my entire life was going to revolve around that one focus. So in the case of that cancer book, I just became obsessed with, you know, learning about cancer. And at some point I had this whole thing with World War II and I was just reading all these World War II books, which obviously like kind of sucks you away from the social life of a 10-year-old, basically. And a similar thing happened in fifth grade. And that was the year we started learning about health and nutrition in school. So puberty and stuff, but also like how much you should exercise. And we learned about like the obesity epidemic and how sugar can cause diabetes and, and just all the mainstream diet knowledge, basically, that can be really harmful for someone who 
takes things very literally. So what happened was I took all these recommendations just so close to heart. I took them so literally. I was like, oh, you need to exercise for that many minutes a day. Well, then I need to make sure every day that I'm exercising that much. Or, oh, sugar can cause diabetes. Well, I don't want that. So better to cut out all sweets. And it just that in and of itself, that interest in, in being healthy just became a special interest of mine to the point where just my entire life revolved around becoming just this epitome of health, which, of course, too much of a good thing is the opposite of the good thing. So within a few months, I lost weight, I fell off my growth curve, and I was diagnosed with anorexia and depression at the age of 11. And kind of from there, I was just forced in and out of treatment because I was a minor, of course, and desperate parents of the oldest child, why won't my kid eat? We need the best help for her. So we went to all these clinics and therapies and appointments and we did everything, everything, like all the traditional treatment, but everything just seemed to make me worse. I became more secretive. I became more isolated. I started hiding food. I started secretly exercising and just everything that was being done to try and save me was just making me go deeper and it got so bad to the point where in 2015 I had been tossed in and out of so many different treatment centers to the point where the psychiatrist in the Netherlands of one of the so-called best clinics here told me you know you've been through so much you've only gotten worse we're just going to have to accept the fact that you're never going to get better now I know with all my autistic clients who I work with, I'm not alone in that story. Like every person I've worked with has been told the same thing. Like you're too complex. You're not going to get better because professionals just don't understand how to work with that autistic angle. So yeah, safe to say, as anyone can imagine after that time was just further downhill from there because I was like, I don't believe in myself. So if the professionals are giving up on me, like the people that are supposed to save me, what am I supposed to do? I had been given up on. So yeah, from there, just everything got really, really bad. I was just obsessed with counting calories and macros and exercise. And it was just my entire life. I always like to use the metaphor of a snow globe. It was like I was living inside and eating this sort of snow globe. And what anyone else did or said just like did not affect me. But what I did and said obviously affected my family. And the most prominent form was through my panic attacks because when the brain is severely malnourished and you mix that with being autistic and just the sensory overload and overwhelm that comes with change, I, it got to a point where I was having panic attacks every single day about just the smallest things. Like if, you know, I would be putting 10 almonds on my oatmeal um and my, my mom was like oh you put nine almonds on your oatmeal I would just completely lose it and I would stomp my feet and I would become just just I would just become this like wild animal that was like couldn't be tamed kind of thing and I would hit people and I would bruise people and I would break things it was just yeah um like looking back now I'm like I cannot believe that was my reaction to my mom not properly counting my almonds mm. um but again hindsight is 2020 and and when you're sick like you're sick and you can't see things in a realistic way but yeah when the panic attacks were just going on for months and were just getting exponentially worse and I saw what it did to my family and especially my sisters who came to be terrified of me I was like I can't do this anymore. Like, this is not me. I'm, like, possessed by some sort of devil. Like, my own family is afraid of me. I can't do this. So then in, in 2017, I'd say, like, that was my rock-bottom moment during one panic attack. That was my rock-bottom moment. And I said, I can't do this anymore. I am going to commit to getting better. I have no idea what that looks like. I mean, I have no idea what's going to happen, which was obviously terrifying. But I was like anything has to be better than this because this is not a life. I mean, if I do not choose the possibility of life right now, my eating disorder is going to choose for me and that possibility is not life. So I'd say from 2017 onwards, that's when I really committed. And 
as much as I wish I could say like, yeah, I started eating more, I started resting, and then it was just upwards and onwards from there. Um, that was obviously not how the cookie crumbled, um, pun intended. <laughs> and it was, it came with a lot of ups and downs, a lot of crying, a lot of more panic attacks, phases of labels, just because I couldn't label myself as an eating disorder anymore. I couldn't have that be my identity anymore. I sought my identity in other places like veganism. Oh, I'm just going to eat this way or I'm going to be a foodie. Now I'm going to be a recipe blogger. I just labeled myself all these things. And I think the real turning point for me before the autism turning point was realizing like no external identity is ever going to define me. And that's kind of where this whole live label free came from, because I had many usernames before that, was, you know, I am only going to be the most true, authentic version of me when I am label free, when I'm just me, no labels attached. And I think that mindset shift that took place to realize that was definitely a gateway, I think, to also accepting the the autism later on. Like, I don't know if I would have been as open to accepting that as an identity that's inherently part of me if I hadn't done this mindset work before. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really powerful. Did you have professional help at that point? Something external to kind of help you get out of that? Or how did you come to those realizations? Yeah, well, the moment in 2017 where I was like, I can't do this anymore, I knew I did have to get professional help at that point outside of the Netherlands. Um, so I actually went to the U.S. We had a whole GoFundMe fundraiser. We raised $80,000 so I could go to treatment in the U.S. Because I knew, you know, in that environment in this country where I had been to every single clinic and they all said like, yep, good luck, you're going to die kind of thing. I was like, I need to get out of Europe. <laughs> I need to go somewhere else. So yeah, I went to North Carolina and I was in patient residential treatment there for six months where I gained a lot of weight, but mentally it was traumatizing. I mean, we did the same therapies that I did before, DBT, CBT, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy. Like, where I mean, I think they have their time and place, but you cannot talk someone out of an eating disorder. That's just not how it works. You cannot talk someone out of, you know, these patterns, especially if, again, you're not aware of the autism. And it's funny because I have a chapter in my book, Rainbow Girl, titled Now the Real Work Begins. And those were actually the words of my therapist the day I left six months of treatment. She said, yeah, well, you've gained all the way and you've done work here, but now the real work begins. And I never knew what she meant by that until I came back home and I was like, I'm on my own now. <laughs> um, I need to figure this out. So I'd say that is when the real mindset work started. And what helped me a lot was was reading. Just, I mean, I read every self-help book I could get my hands on, like The Power of Now, you know, all these books by Eckhart Tolle. I read books by like the old psychologists and just trying to understand like, what is the purpose of life? I mean, the big existential question of every person, right? And just through reading so much, I think that's what allowed me also to gain just this immense passion for the written word and inspired me honestly to become a writer myself one day because I realized like how transformative words can be. Um, Like it is truly an art form and to, you know, have the ability to move people and, and create just from letters. I was like, this is just fascinating to me. And that's why, you know, I am an author now and just, you know, hearing what parents are saying and, you know, fellow autistic eating disorder warriors are saying about my book, Rainbow Girl, my most recent book. I'm like, wow, I truly am touching and changing so many lives. And I think that is the biggest gift that this whole journey has given me is the ability to now, having turned my mess into my message and to contribute that message beyond myself. I think that is the purpose of life is what greater contribution are we making beyond ourselves? Hmm. Yeah, I like that. Okay, Livia. So when you're helping your autistic clients now through coaching, what are some kinds of like action steps that they can start applying? that are related to their autism with some of this reframing of what an eating disorder is? 
Yeah, well, I think first of all, it's really important to learn how to disentangle the autistic traits from eating disorder behaviors because that was a huge, I guess, unknown barrier for me. And that's why I think, you know, the professional treatment, like I said, it was mentally traumatizing because the professionals basically told me like, all these preferences you have around food and like that you need structure around food and that you need the predictability around food. They were all saying like, well, as long as you have that, you won't recover from your eating disorder. And for me, you know, discovering the autism was like, wow, like my desire for predictability and structure and routine, these are just my preferences in all areas of my life. Like, so why wouldn't they also be preferences around food? And I think that was almost like the golden ticket for me to be like, okay, these can just be autistic traits and we can separate the eating disorder. Like we can leave the eating disorder behind us because these things are completely unrelated. So that's a huge part of coaching is really learning like, okay, which behaviors are actually eating disorder behaviors, but which preferences are just completely unrelated like what are preferences that are just you and help you feel safe because I think in the end we cling to the eating disorder for safety because we don't know what th- what other things actually give us safety so that's another huge piece of work, um, work I do with my clients is like what gives you safety in life and how can we bring more of that into your life so you no longer rely on an unhealthy coping me- mechanism to provide you with that safety and I'd say, you know, when it comes to distinguishing the eating disorder behaviors from the autistic traits, it all comes down to the intention behind the behavior. So, for example, a big one in treatment, which just looking back can make me so angry because I now know like that was definitely not an eating disorder behavior. It was that whenever we would go to a restaurant or go out to eat, I always needed to know like the menu beforehand so I could like plan like what I was going to have and and knew that everything would be okay kind of thing and could kind of mentally prepare for how it was going to taste and how I would experience that thing but in treatment they'd say like oh well you wanting to know in advance that's an eating disorder behavior and I was like no it isn't but of course I didn't know about the autism so I was like I know it's not eating disorder behavior but I don't know what it is. So yeah, I think that's just a huge problem in the eating disorder treatment is that there's not really much awareness for autism. So going back to the restaurant example, that needing to know the restaurant in advance, that can be an autistic trait because, you know, we desire the predictability. But on the other hand, it could also be an eating disorder behavior if the intention behind it was, I need to know that they have like the lowest calorie thing. Mm. With my clients, it's going to sound ironic, but hear me out, is that I actually don't like to focus on eating disorder recovery, but rather on discovery. One of my favorite quotes is, where your attention goes, energy flows. And I think when you're focused on recovery, especially with the autistic perfectionistic nature, we get so focused on, am I doing recovery right? Like, well, like, would a recovery person in recovery do this and then they get obsessed with watching youtube videos and going on social media and following other recovery accounts to make sure that like they're all on the same path kind of thing but i think that keeps us trapped in almost this like if you see living in an eating disorder as like the usa and um being recovered as like europe like you need to cross the ocean and i almost see like recovery as being that ocean that you need to like swim through basically and if you're so focused only on like am I swimming right and you don't know what direction you're going in like you will never get to Europe (laughs) um, because you'll you'll constantly be swimming so yeah that's why I prefer the word discovery instead because I think that rather than recovering from an eating disorder I think recovering from an eating disorder is more so about discovering who you are without the disorder not about doing recovery right or wrong and like am I failing at this because with discovery there is no failing you're simply discovering whatever's next mm-hmm. yeah it leaves it a lot more open that way yes okay so going back to your example about what behavior could be considered an eating disorder behavior could you just give a little bit like a few more examples of that and compare it to autism? or like what an autistic trait would be. Yeah, so one that 
is another one that's immediately coming up from treatment is food temperature. I am so picky about the temperature of my food and just makes me think of of Goldilocks like this porridge is too hot, this one is too cold, (laughs) this one is just right. Yeah, I just in the treatment centers always it was, you know, you can only microwave your food one time and if it gets too cold, well too bad, you have to done eat it. Or they would serve things like lukewarm and I'd be like, no, this is not okay. It either has to be cold or it has to be hot. Like I'm super sensitive to just the temperature of my food. And they would always just say if I wanted to microwave something because I wanted it to be hotter. Oh, that's an eating disorder behavior. You're just trying to delay the food. You're just trying to delay eating. But I now know like that is totally an autistic trait because like, The amount of times I use my microwave, it's like actually insane (laughs) because I'm like, I need to get the food to be just right. And I mean, a lot of autistic people have this thing with temperature preferences. Like one of my clients actually, like they just feel really more comfortable eating food that's cold. So they will often just anything and everything just in the freezer for a brief moment. So it'll be really cold. Whereas for me, I'm more of a person who just likes eating food hot. So yeah, I will microwave my coffee so many times in the morning. <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. Because others, I just, I can't enjoy it otherwise because I'm so focused on like everything that's like wrong with it kind of thing, mm-hmm. which yeah, a lot of people I know resonate with. Another one that's really common in the autistic community and also the ADHD community that I've seen so many like memes about and stuff is that we need to eat with certain spoons and certain utensils because it obviously like a big spoon is going to be a totally different sensory experience than eating with a dessert spoon. Like imagine eating soup with a teaspoon and I don't know, gelato with a soup ladle. Like that's going to be a totally (laughs) different experience. So I think that is a huge one that autistic people are so picky about. So many of my clients, when they travel, they're like, I've got my own cutlery set with me so I know that I can eat and feel safe. And that would have definitely been called an eating disorder behavior you know before the autism diagnosis and they would have said oh the fact that you're eating with a small spoon you're just trying to take smaller bites so you can eat more slowly and this kind of stuff Hmm. um that could be the intention but again that word intention is so important like are you eating with a small spoon because you really do want to delay the eating experience or are you eating with a small spoon because sensory wise that actually makes it easier to eat right right so yeah those are a few examples okay so what are the different types of eating disorders that might be linked to autism so we've talked about anorexia what else yeah well i think this is an interesting question and i am actually currently writing my fifth book on on actually the link between eating disorders and and autism and just how autism is a spectrum and no autistic person can really be fit into a box. I actually feel that it would be much more appropriate if we had something called an eating disorder spectrum, because of course we have anorexia, but there's also now something called atypical anorexia, which is basically the individual meets all the criteria for anorexia, but doesn't fit the low underweight stereotype, and therefore they're atypical. Well, this is super stigmatizing and can cause someone with atypical anorexia to believe they're not sick enough. They don't have real anorexia, so why would they get help? Because it's not valid kind of thing. Super dangerous comes back to the nature of, of labels and why I don't like labels. But yeah, kind of to go off your question, I mean, there are, you know, a few eating disorders that are just, they do have labels. And I think yeah, it's it's kind of to go into that rabbit hole now of like, oh, we should just not have these labels anymore would be a whole complete separate topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, anorexia and everything that falls under that, I mean, atypical anorexia is anorexia because weight has nothing to do with it ultimately. Because if anorexia was only about a desire to be thin and lose weight, then people in larger bodies would not have anorexia, yet they do. And statistically, atypical anorexia is actually more prevalent than people with who are underweight and have it. So mm. I think one that is really common in autistic people and has actually kind of been considered a neurodivergent eating disorder is, is ARFID. So that's Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. 
and it often gets confused with anorexia because it can manifest in similar ways, just like very restrictive eating. ARFID is is usually labeled as very picky eating, mm. and I've actually worked with a mom, and her kid just would only eat pe- peanut butter sandwiches and nothing else. Like, but also like not just that; it had to always be the same brand of bread, and always had to be the same brand of peanut butter. And for that reason, they could never go on vacation. They could never travel like abroad, or they would have to bring like an entire suitcase of bread and peanut butter with them because he just would not eat anything else. And obviously, someone who has ARFID and is, you know, very selective in the foods they're eating, the chances of, you know, nutrient deficiencies and growth delays and all this kind of stuff is obviously that's going to happen because the body cannot only eat peanut butter and bread if it's going to be optimally healthy, yeah. right? We need vitamin C and, and all the other wonderful things that other foods give us. So yeah, that can be a real struggle for parents, especially. But I think also ARFID, it's usually, I feel like people think about, oh, like only little kids have that. But like adults can have ARFID as well. And that can really hinder the the quality of life. Like if you, you know, can't ever go out or can't work or can't travel because, you know, you're so reliant on this specific food or this very small group of foods, like obviously like that can be hindu- mm-hmm. act as a barrier to living a full life in so many ways. How do you work with someone like that? Yeah, I think it always comes down to safety. I mean, whether I'm working with anorexia, ARFID, binge eating disorder, bulimia, which we'll get into as well, it all comes down to safety. Because someone, you know, who doesn't eat other foods, it's because they're afraid of eating the other foods. Like, they feel safe eating their peanut butter sandwiches. Like, that's the only thing that feels safe to them. And I actually do have a podcast episode on my own channel with a dietitian that specializes in ARFID where she kind of delves into the three different types of ARFID, Mm. which, yeah, again, I think that's too much to go into here. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. Yeah. Yeah. But there are different types of ARFID where, you know, where kind of the the illness or the disorder. I don't even like to call it that because there's a group of ARFID people in the ARFID community who say, this isn't actually a disorder. This is just a manifestation of my neurodivergence and it's not actually hindering my life. So again, I don't have ARFID, never have. So I don't want to speak for them because I can only obviously share my own lived experience. But in all cases, it comes down to safety and how can we, we, you know, have other options also feel safe or at least feel invited to, you know, try these things. Right. So again, it's hard to say this is how I work with someone because everyone is so different and individualized and it's all kind of trial and error, which is life. <laughs> um. So yeah, those are fed. And then binge eating disorder is another one that is so, so, so common in autistic people. I do have a podcast episode on my podcast titled autistic types of binge eating, which is interesting because while everyone thinks like, oh, binge eating is just eating too much, when you bring the autistic perspective into it, you can see that there are a lot of different reasons for why someone who has autistic might binge eat. So an example might be, and I call this the make sense binge, is that like for me when I'm eating or any of my clients when we're eating, food has to like look a certain way it can't like I can't just put the spoon in the peanut butter jar and then eat that and be done like the peanut butter has to be like smoothed out I need to like leave it looking a certain way or when I'm arranging food on my plates or getting pieces of a chocolate bar I can't just break some of the chocolate bar off me like it's done no like the squares have to be perfect and you know when you're dealing with that what can happen is like that the food is never being left perfectly how they want it so they're like okay, well, if I just eat all of it, then it'll be gone. I don't have to look at it anymore. Oh, okay. Yes. So that's one example that, I mean, so many autistic people have reached out to me and saying like, this is like the first time I understand where that binge eating behavior is coming from. I never understood it. And now it literally makes sense. Right. Is there also maybe some comorbidity with OCD there too? In some cases? Yes, yes. I I definitely think so. The OCD is another interesting thing because I feel like to distinguish the OCD behavior from the autistic 
trait is again comes down to intention because I think OCD behaviors are, are often based from fear or anxiety like like I'm gonna get so anxious if I don't leave that chocolate a certain way that could be OCD but it could also be an autistic trait yeah it, it's hard and again it's like we're so limited to the labels <laughs> right right but yeah I mean it's something that again comes down to safety like how can I feel safe leaving the chocolate and having it not be perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's kind of the challenge and the thing that we can be curious around. Yeah. And just one thing about the labels, like I understand your what you're saying about, you know, looking at it as a spectrum and how lim- labels can be limiting, but labels also help when trying to think about the best way to support someone who could be struggling, right? Yes. Exactly. Yeah, I actually have this question in my book, Rainbow Girl, but Livia, isn't autism a label? (laughs) And I kind of dive into that and say like, yeah, it is. But if we think about it, everything in life is a label. Like I'm looking at you through a computer screen. I have labeled this as a computer. And I mean, in some cases, you know, labeling, again, kind of going back to that intention piece that I keep bringing about is that labels I think can come from two places they can come from a place of fear and restriction and limitation so I can't eat this food because it's bad it's not healthy that restricts us that limits us or labels can come from a place of actually helping us to function and improve our life and I think in the case of autism being a label that has helped me understand myself that has helped me function so in that case I think it can be a helpful label and like you just said to better support someone, like if we can say, oh, this is Arfid, or oh, this is binge eating, or oh, this is anorexia, obviously we can help them. But because there's so much overlap with the eating disorders, like for example, I had anorexia, but when I needed to gain weight, I mean, I ate as much food as a person with binge eating disorder. So it's like, well, but I didn't have binge eating disorder. I needed all that food kind of thing. And that's where it can be tricky. Yeah. So again, it's all it all comes down to like, Using labels when they actually help functionality and then kind of letting them go, becoming label-free when you feel like they're limiting you or they're restricting you. Mm. Okay, got it. And then the last one we can talk about, I think, is bulimia. It's like another one of the common eating disorders, and that is, you know, eating a lot of food and then and then purging it either through laxative use, exercise, or, or vomiting. And, I mean... The clients that I've had who do have bulimia, it's like they get the sensory input from the binge eating, but then the high almost from the purging. Um, like the throwing up or overexercise in and of itself can just be a huge, have a huge stimulatory, like euphoric effect in a way. And obviously it also just like kind of numbs out the guilt of eating that much if like I know I'm gonna get rid of it after it's like it almost gives you permission to do it Mm -hmm. but yeah I mean it's unhealthy in so many ways just like any disorder it creates lack of order but yeah I mean obviously like I said I believe there's so much of a spectrum that goes beyond the eating disorders I just mentioned because there are all types of eating disorders that we didn't even talk about like PICA, which is, oh, what does it stand for? It's P-I-C-A, um, PICA, I'm going to look it up. PICA eating disorder. Um, is that where they put things in their mouths and eat things up? Yeah, it's a compulsive eating disorder in which people eat non-food items. Uh-huh. So there's a mom I follow on Instagram and her daughter has PICA and like she will just start eating like the paint off the wall. Obviously super harmful because it's filled with chemicals. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Like I said, just we could go endless on about this. Yeah. But (laughs) I'll stop myself there. No, that's okay. This is really helpful just to give an idea of, you know, the different types of eating disorders that are out there and also how they interconnect with autism. We've talked on the podcast, like some guests have come on and shared little anecdotes of their eating disorders, but we've not gone into depth like this. So this is really helpful. Great. I'm glad. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, Livia, so you mentioned that you're working on another book right now, right? Well, yeah, three more. (laughs) Okay, okay. I just finished writing my fourth book two weeks ago, and I just started my fifth book. Okay, so um, what is your current book about? 
Yeah, well, okay, so I, I'll kind of just create an outline because they're all connected in a way. Okay. My first book is a cookbook um, called Nourishing Neurodiversity, and that's filled with recipes, you know, for the neurodivergent. So super easy recipes that can help executive functioning and also support gut health because I know digestive issues are a huge issue in the autistic community. And it's just filled with a lot of tips and just tricks for how can you make healthy eating easier and more accessible if you are neurodivergent. Rainbow Girl, my second book, is my memoir. And I'd say that's like currently my big book in the sense that that's like my entire life story sharing what it was like growing up undiagnosed autistic, how I developed an eating disorder, and basically just a really deep dive into like the link between autism and eating disorders and giving like a lived experience account of what that was like. And I just dive into, you know, the harmful effects of treatment for autistic people. And then of course I share what did work for me to fully recover from my eating disorder and kind of where I am today. My third book is about extreme hunger. And that's I kind of just touched on that in someone who is recovering from anorexia will need a lot of food to recover. And we will go through this phase called extreme hunger, which is basically what it sounds like. We are so extremely hungry. We can't stop eating. I mean I had a period where I was eating upwards of 10,000 calories a day for months. And I had this fear of like, oh my God, I'm developing binge eating disorder. But it wasn't that. My body just needed food because I had not eaten enough for almost 10 years. So Mm. you were going to need to compensate. My fourth book is actually very different than what I usually talk about. It's not really eating disorder focused. It was a book I wrote when I was just really experiencing the effects of autistic burnout. And this book is is really about how to overcome autistic burnout and actually live a life that's in alignment with your values in which you feel energized, in which you feel fulfilled. It's basically an autistic self-help book, kind of a compilation of all the most important and empowering and impactful messages I've learned from all the self-help books I've read and then basically with an autistic lens. Mm. And then the fifth book I'm writing is, I can't give the name yet, but it's about the overlap between autism and eating disorders. And I know that book is going to take a while because it's going to be very scientific (laughs) and all that. But yeah, that's kind of where I'm going. And I have 31 book ideas on my list at this point. So yeah. I love writing. It's It truly is my greatest passion. Oh, that's amazing. And you're still quite young, so you have a lot of years to go in your advocacy work. Yes, thankfully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, Livia. So I'd like to close with one last question. Do you have any tips for autistic adults, maybe even specifically autistic females, who you know might be going on their own journey related to eating disorders right now? Honestly, the most important thing, I think the first thing that's coming up for me is that I invite you to see your autism as a gift rather than a disability or rather than a hindrance. Because I think one of the biggest misconceptions in the autism eating disorder space is if you are also autistic, eating disorder recovery is going to be a lot harder. I mean, I wholeheartedly disagree. If you know how to use your autistic traits to your advantage, not only in eating disorder recovery, but in life, I mean, nothing can stop you. And that for me, I mean, I've noticed that firsthand with with my traits, that going all the way back to the beginning of this episode in which I said, I think persistence, perseverance, like when I want something, I will go for it and I will not stop at anything. That basically helped my eating disorder survive because I was like, I'm going to have this eating disorder, I'm going to be so healthy, I'm going to exercise. Like, it just made me so disciplined to have an eating disorder, basically. But when I decided I was going to recover, I was like, I'm going to recover and I'm going to do whatever it takes. And I don't care what any professional said to me, whether I wasn't going to get better, I was too complex. I am going to achieve a life of freedom and I'm going to keep going until I achieve that. And the only reason I think why I've been able to do that and why anyone is able to to do that is, you know, when they do embrace their strengths rather than saying, oh, this is a hindrance for me. 
Because as long as you believe something is a hindrance, that's exactly what it's going to be. But the moment you say, this is a muscle that I can train and make stronger, when you have that awareness, you're going to start using that muscle and you're going to want to train it because you know you can make it stronger. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you so much. Thank you. And how can people learn more about you? You want to share your social media and your website? Yeah, so my website is livelabelfree.com and that's live, L-I-V, labelfree.com because my name is Livia, so live is my nickname. <laughs> and then my social, like, yeah, my social media and all my other handles are live label free. I am the host of the live label free podcast. And yeah, and then of course my books, you can, I actually do now have an official online bookstore called livelabelfreebooks.com. And there you can find right now my cookbook, Nourishing No Diversity, and my memoir, Rainbow Girl. And if you sign up for my email list and all that, you'll get updates about my future books okay and yeah that's basically how you can find me and you can always send me a message on social media or contact me via my website if you want to get in touch all right thank you so much for sharing your experiences and i think this episode is just going to educate so many people and maybe you know inspire some hope for those out there who might be struggling yeah i hope so thank you so much for creating the space to share autistic voices Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Have you had any personal experiences with eating disorders? Share your perspective over in our online global autism community. Whether you're a self-advocate like Livia, wanting to share your story, a family member hoping to support and empower your loved ones, or a professional seeking to improve your practice, our global autism community is a place for you to connect and collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.